Welcome to the next show. If you are here and I second, and we are really excited. This is a very special show today. Um, you may already know, but if you don't, we are going to, in honor of Independence Day and such, we're having two of our local political leaders on for a discussion about current events, their own story, um, and especially what they are doing and can do for the I want to make a couple of announcements first um, the first thing is that well I should tell you who we're gonna have I did forget that for the first hour we're gonna have Mayor Lori gear and we'll be looking forward to talking with her and for the second hour Senator uh, State Senator Liz Lovelet will join us and uh, maybe we'll even overlap with them a little bit around the hour um, let me make a couple of announcements and then we're going to bring on Mayor Gear. Uh, first of all, next month, uh, for those who are regular listeners, you may remember that last August, Pearl Tottenham uh, co-hosted with me and we did an entertainment industry. This coming um, August, we are going to do a show and Pearl's going to co-host. We're going to have a great round table um, we've got some artists. We've got Kevin Erickson that used to live at the DOS and now runs the Future Music Coalition in Washington, D.C. We have a lot uh, going on for you then and a lot to learn. Um, so I hope you'll join us then. Um, also, I want to start us off with a song today. For those of you who do not know, um, Dominic Ermey is a local graduate. He just graduated from Anacortes High School in what However, we had to do it during the uh, COVID situation, but he did get out of school. He, for those of you who are in the music community, you will know that he is a guitar prodigy. He, his band won the Rock the Island competition uh, this year. Um, he's been in the School of Rock in Seattle for quite a few years, and he has a uh, quite a few projects, three or four projects that he's been working on. The one with some of his School of Rock um, compatriots is called David's Van. They played the Sound Off competition, which the Lonely Forest and the Organ Donor and some others from our town have played and done very well in. Um, the David's Van won their evening, but the finals did get canceled because of Corona, so that's unfortunate. Um, what they did release, or they have one song out, KEXP, KEXP played it and got really positive reviews. So K-Doug's going to play it, and then we'll come back in a second. And this song is called Swim Test. 
so that was Swim Test by David Van, local lead guitarist Dominic Ermey. He is heading to the Musicians Institute of Los Angeles, one of the best guitar programs in the entire world. People like Jeff Buckley and Anderson Pack and Peter Thorne have graduated and gone on to great things. Um, so we're excited for him. With that said, I would like to welcome our uh, first guest, Mayor Lori Gear, onto the program. Hi, Mayor. Hi, hi, Todd. Thanks for having me here tonight. I am, I'm just excited to be part of your program, and everything you you are doing for the community, for music, and you know what you share with me tonight. You're in your fifth year of these incredible radio shows, and. Just be, thanks for being part of the, the art scene, the music scene that makes Anacorda so incredible. Well, thank you very much. And we certainly appreciate you being here. Um, what I want to do is the kind of, I want to touch on a few issues, but I also want to talk about you and your own personal path. And so, you know, we'll jump around a little bit and we'll get where we're going. All right. Okay. Um, one reason that I really wanted to start with Dominic's song, because we certainly could have played it whenever, was the issue that, so he's going off to school, he's a young artist, and one of the main issues when I talked to um, the, the music community once I knew that once you had committed that you were going to be coming on about what they'd want to hear about um, was low-income housing. And of course, that's an issue that I know that you and Senator Lovelett also, when she was on the council and probably still, uh, she'll be telling us about that. But I wanted to, let's start there. Okay. Well, uh, as you mentioned, uh, Senator Lovelett, she, she took on the initiative and she was on the council. Um, the council took a lead on putting together a whole committee that was focused on um, housing and all the other issues that families in need, need, so the wraparound services. That being said, we built on that since Liz went on to service in Olympia, and we work really closely, a couple of things we've done. We work really closely with the Alicorce Family Center. You know, they've built a couple of different units, a workforce housing, a total supported housing unit, and now they're gonna be building a third uh, apartment with uh, for working families with daycare. And that's been done through um, partnerships with the city, local donations, and now the, ci the citizens of Anacortes um, voted for that sales tax of one-tenth of one percent that will start being collected yesterday, July 1st, that, right. that that monies will go, well, they'll be passed through to the city and we'll pass them to the Anacortes Family Center and to the Anacortes Housing Authority. So the Anacortes Family Center wants to build this new complex I just talked about, and then, of course, Housing Center, um, Housing Authority wants to build three townhouses on 18th Street, and they want to refurbish the um, Olson building, you know, down where Marine Hardware is and where the bike spot is, workforce housing. So we've worked with them. The city, our role there really was to help um, navigate how we get that on the ballot and get information to the voters. And our community, because our community believes in that everybody should have a place to live and work in our community, no matter what their income level is, 
because, you know, artists bring all this joy to our lives. And oftentimes artists, especially artists, aren't paid probably how they should be paid. But they bring this richness to our community and all the reasons I want to be in this community. So we, so that's one piece. We also, when we redid the comp plan and our land use development code, we, we worked on um, redeveloping like the R4 zone and the R3 zone to allow more cottage style housing, ADUs, smaller footprints, um, maybe a little higher, more density, so that we could provide um, affordable housing that, that's nice quality housing for, for everybody that lives and works here. So that's, right. those are some of the things we've done. I'd like to, uh, so let me ask you a question. The Anacortes Family Center, you know, of course, that this is, um, this radio program is part of the Anacortes Music Project, which for full disclosure, I should point out that the city council and um, the city government gives us a little bit of LTAC money to help us with um, some of the events that we're able to put on. Right. Though we are moving quickly towards self-sufficiency, but that's a different discussion. Um, but our, one of our very first fundraisers was to benefit the Anacortes Family Center. So I'm just proud to, to yeah. be able to throw that in. I do have a real particular question about, so we're in the middle of a pandemic. Um, sales have dropped precipitously. And so I'm a little confused on whether or not the monies that would have been set aside for the low house causing, uh, housing will now be diverted towards other, just because we need the money for... No, it, it can't be diverted. It, it, it cannot will, be. No, you will get one. The pot may not be as big because the total amount of money being brought in won't be as big. But the one-tenth of one percent is allocated to that to that fund. You know, we, I see. And city government, we're not allowed to just move things around. As much as people want us to do that, you know, <laughs> <laughs> if it's Allocated for one thing, it has to stay there. So um, the good news is our sales tax did come in for the month of April, which was the mo month right now that the most we had the most closures. And it came in at 70% of normal. So we're, oh, wow. we're pretty encouraged. Um, commercial construction, some essential construction was going on, helped out. Car sales, um, internet sales, for some reason, people stayed home and ordered online. But the good part about that now, you we collect it as where it's delivered is where you get to collect the sales tax. That's right. And that fourth, let's see, so it was car sales, internet sales, commercial construction, and then we spent an awful lot of the grocery stores that weren't that wasn't food. A lot of you know, so we we thought we might come in at thirty percent of normal. We came in at seventy, so we're we're heartened. It won't be the full hundred percent. So. Mm -hmm. Um, it may take us a little longer for everybody to get what they want, but you will get your, that one, not you, the Anacortes Family Center and the Housing Authority will get one-tenth of one percent of whatever sales taxes we collect. Oh, okay. Well, that's that's fabulous to hear that that's how that's going to happen. Um, as long as we're touching on it, I told you before we came on air that the conversation might hop around a little bit, but that's how we like it here is kind of where it goes. 
Um, so COVID and Corona just came up and I'm just kind of curious on, on a personal level, really, cause you've made some public statements. Um, but how in the world have you dealt with this? You could not have, a, you could have imagined some things that could happen to derail maybe your, your time, but I doubt that this was one that you thought about. No, I, I thought the worst that could happen would be an earthquake. Mm -hmm. and that would be a terrible thing. That was always my worst fear of being mayor of, of having that kind of a natural disaster, not ever thinking about a health pandemic. So it's been a growing opportunity. It's been unprecedented times. It's trying to see, stay calm in a stormy sea. And there's been days I've gone home exhausted and closed the door and think, oh my, and I get up <laughs> in the morning and we, we go at it again. And, and you know, really uh, my role and the role of all the leaders in the state is just public safety, public health, and getting us through this. Because we not only have our physical public health and our physical, I mean, our personal um, health, we've got, now we, you know, like you just alluded to, the economy, you know, but I, I really, from day one, thought if we don't have our public health, our, our physical health, we won't have a healthy economy. So I've always, when I've had to make a hard call, I've gone with public health every time. And um, so we're, we're doing, we've made those hard choices, but we're doing it. Definitely. And then on an official level, would you mind just telling us where we are now? There was some discussion about opening up. That seems like maybe not. Where, where, what, just what is the official situation? Officially, we're in phase two. We, as of today, the governor said he would not even look at any other, anyone moving forward for a minimum of two more weeks. We, as of a few days ago, we're not even close to qualifying. You, we, you know, I think we're up to 30 some per, over 30. You can have up to 25 cases per 100,000 population. And well, we're, well above that. I think the last two days we've had seven new cases a day. Oh. To that, yeah, it's not an anacortis proper um, in in the county. Anacortis, mm -hmm. I think we've total since March have had thirty four cases. Um, no deaths here, so we're lucky. I think we've had fifteen in the county now. Um, we're well, we're about five hundred and over five hundred cases in the county. And we're very concerned that 4th of July weekend, people try to maintain a little bit of um, stay at home, stay with their close family, um, so we don't see a spike in two weeks, so that we can get to phase three. Right. We can open up our economy a little more. Um, but we're seeing all over the country and in counties where they haven't done that, where the numbers are spiking. So, you know... It's a virus, and until we have a vaccine, we, we get to play by the virus's rules. Um, yeah. Yeah, well, that is definitely true. Um, I have one more thing on this subject before we take a quick break and play a song. Doug, if you wouldn't mind getting um, an enduro song prepared for us, and I should just mention that uh, outside of Dominic's song at the beginning all the songs that we play tonight were on uh senator lovelet's um list so thank you liz for 
I mean, when I when I told Liz we needed to have some songs, she said the biggest problem would be, uh, this you know, like cutting down the list. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, <laughs> so I did some of that for her. <laughs> but um, here's the last thing before we play that song that I want to touch on. So, um, I don't really know the story. Maybe you can fill it in. But I guess there were some directives that came down. Um, related to the fireworks and the um celebration and then you had to make a decision which i think you did make and could you just talk about that for a second so um our county um health department the doctor of public health dr lee bren he came out well over six weeks ago and said to all of the mayors in the county said i'm i'm highly recommending at that point recommending today it would be he would have said much stronger language that you cancel all parades and all fireworks because of COVID and big group gatherings. So of course that was before some of these protests and some of the things we've seen in the last six weeks, but I think it was very wise. And so all of us in Skagit County, uh, all mayors and all cities, we have canceled our fireworks and our parades for July 4th, heartbreaking. The closer we get to the July 4th, I'm just like, I, 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 but I know it was the right thing to do. Now on the fireworks, we'd already paid for them. And to return them, it was going to cost us $7,000. And I said, no, 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 we're not returning them. We will hold on to them and we will pay the balance of the fee and have them come and do a fireworks display for Anacortes sometime this year when it's safe to do so. So I'm going to come out with some kind of a COVID celebration sometime in 2020 where we get to do something fun. But so yes, all the cities in, in the county um, are following the directives of the Skagit County Health Department. Oh, well, that sounds great. I cannot wait for you to call the Anacortes Music Project and let us help you help the community celebrate. I'm thrilled to call you to help us. <laughs> <laughs> With that, uh, we're going to, um, K-Doug, will you please start? The song is called Last One Out, and it is by Enduro. And I should just point out that some of the members, Bob Vokes, John Lunsford, Brian Tottenham, are all employees that work under um, Mayor Gear. So They're great. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Let's hear the song. Go ahead, K-Doug. One, two, three, four. <laughs>
And that was Enduro, and the next show is back with Mayor Lori Gear. Um, so, Mayor Gear, I'd like to take a minute, shift kind of from policy and such, and just talk a little bit about you. 
I'm sure that some people know your story. Uh, I've lived here for 20 years, and I uh, so I haven't grown up with you, but I mean, I don't, I don't actually know it, and I'm interested. Uh, prior to tonight, and maybe shaking your hand at uh, when Liz won her council seat the first time. I don't. <laughs> the only other time that we've been in the same place was. Uh, when you were running for mayor and I was coincidentally president of the PTA at Island view and I, I had remember. you and uh, current mayor or not current, but Farmer. current at the time, uh, right. mayor Maxwell and you both came in and spoke to us. So limited personal interaction, I guess is my point. So I guess I don't even know, are you, did, were you born here? I don't no. know where you're from. Can you give me a little primer? Sure. I was born in Illinois, and my folks decided that when I was um, a baby that they weren't going to raise their children in the Midwest. They were going west. So we landed in Seattle, and I grew up in the Seattle area, a great time to grow up in the 50s, 60s, 70s era. Um, and then out of right out of college, um, my then-husband and I got our first jobs here. And we moved here to Anacortes in 1975. Um, and I got hired to be the Red Cross manager. And the office actually was in the city hall. Oh. Isn't that funny? I, I, don't, I don't know. It was just a long time ago. And I had a baby boy at the time. We were, you know, newlyweds just right here. And we felt like we loved it. It was beautiful here. But we, we went back to the city a lot because at that time, if when you grow up in a city and then you come back to Santa Certainly. Carter, a pretty small town. But it, it And I bet then it was a very small town. It was, it was. I think it was about just short of nine thousand people when we got here. But we fell in love with it and we realized this is where we wanted to raise our son and have a life. And so then about nineteen eighty one, uh the next thing was, well, how do we really create a um, a life with a business and, you know, an economic future. Um, and that's how Ghirardelli came to be. It was like choosing to find a way to, to um, economically stay here and create a life. Right. Before I let you go on about that, I have a question about something you just went over. So can I just stop you one second before you tell me? Absolutely. May I, I guess is the right. So the first thing is that were you already interested in public service? Is that how Red Cross came together? or No, no it was a job that was available and I interviewed for it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know, town, actually, I had a teaching degree, and there were no teaching jobs. There were none. Uh, and so I got, it was, it was what was available at the time. My husband got hired by the city, and I went looking for a teaching job, and there weren't any. So um, I got hired by this um, and, and the chapter of the American Red Cross. And at that point, it was a really robust, I had a food bank. It, it was a really big, robust program. I'm probably um, similar to the type of services Salvation Army does today. Okay. Um, you know, I had the basement of City Hall pretty much filled up with supplies and um, it was a great introduction, introduction to the community though. I got to meet incredible people that were on my board of directors. I worked for a board of directors of about 15 people that, um, you know, were three times my age and 
I showed up with long hair and blue jeans and they wanted me to always wear a skirt to work. And I'm like, but I'm hauling stuff up and down stairs. Anyway, <laughs> but it was great. It was just a great introduction. The, the political part kind of came organically after being in a, a small business person for years. Okay. I was a small business person. So the next thing I did is I got, I got involved with the chamber because I wanted to support our downtown being vital and, and you know, how do I file taxes and how do you train employees? And it was pretty one-on-one kind of basic things back then that I was learning and I wanted to make sure other businesses had those resources. Mm -hmm. So I did that for 10 years. And then someone came up to the counter of my business one day and said, you should be a hospital commissioner. And I said, I don't know anything about medicine. And they said, no, no, no. We need somebody that's in the, a business person that's, you know, represents downtown. And there was an opening. Someone had moved out of the district and I went and did an application process and was selected. And then six months later I ran. So that was my first elected. And I did that for 12 years. 12 years. Oh, okay. I always served two terms as an Island hospital commissioner and kind of along a parallel time, right after I got down with the chamber, um, Dean, uh, our former mayor and um, came to me and said, you know, you should serve on the planning commission and represent the downtown. <laughs> so it kind of <laughs> all helped. And it kind of happened because I was a, a small, uh, I was a main street business person and people mm -hmm. wanted that, that um, sector of our town represented. So I just got to the, do these incredible things because of that. Um, and, and then from that, you know, the rest of the story after, after that, then someone said, well, you should run for mayor. And I said, well, I'm busy. I'm running a business. I'm on the <laughs> board. And, but over about 15 years, I said, you know, I, maybe I should run for mayor. I could represent, you know, uh, the business <laughs> community. And, and finally, um, about eight years ago, I thought, well, if I'm ever going to do it, I need to do it. And I thought, I'll put my name in. And if, if, if that's what people want and, it's just been an honor to serve and incredible to be able to participate in your own community this way. So that decision to go from perhaps, you know, people asking you to do this and do that and you doing it and doing it well and starting to understand how city government works. And I'm sure all of that, but then to, to take that final step across the line that I am going to run for mayor, was that easy for you at that moment or was that a really difficult decision to get to? Um, it, it took years for me to get to it. Mm -hmm. but once I, I, once I, I had a certain birthday and I thought, you know, if you're ever going to do this, you know, either um, step up or be quiet, either do it or, move on and so by the time i made it i was ready to make it okay. and i felt like my business was in a good place um it was something that i thought i could really make a difference mm -hmm. and um and here i am so it's been incredible definitely well and you you certainly have and i want to touch on a a couple things um We've got about 15 or so of your minutes left and um, 15 or 20. And I want to reverse back to a couple other things. So let's do that. The first thing is you mentioned about your 
hospital commissioner time. I think you said 12 years. And another point that was made clearly to me from the music community, in addition to low house causing, uh, uh, low cost housing was healthcare. And something I'm just not sure about is does our local city government have any role in that? Or is that up the, up the chain to the state and, of course, the federal? We have no role, no official role. Now, I have a great working relationship with the hospital. Um, but let me tell you, coming from being a hospital commissioner, one thing, our, and I, this is not news to anybody, is our medical system in the United States is broken. You know, we need to fix it. Um, it's, and I don't even know where we begin. You know, we've, we've had some federal programs that started to address it, but you know, the cost of insurance, the cost of just doing medical care, just what one piece of equipment, you know, like a, an MRI, a piece of equipment at the hospital is a million dollars. Oh my goodness. No, it's just, I, you know, and until I was on the board and really understood how convoluted and how difficult it was. And we have incredible people there trying to do their, you know, good works, but they get reimbursed very little, you know, sometimes for the work they do. And uh, the way, I don't know, with insurance companies, the way it's structured in our country, um, maybe Liz could take that on a state level and or federal level and fix it for us. But I'm just kidding. (laughs) Yeah, <laughs> yeah, we're gonna. I'm, I'm gonna pepper it. her with that same <laughs> question. Hey, Liz. <laughs> no, but we do have incredible. Back to that, just for a moment. We do have an incredible foundation at Island Hospital, and they do incredible work to raise funds and try to help people in you know in need. So there, there are some local resources, but it's it's a it's a huge problem. Okay, understood. Yeah. Um, I was afraid that was going to be that answer, but that yeah. is, we'll, we'll be tackling that next hour. I know that Liz has the answers. <laughs> um, so let me uh, shift to another thing that you, that has happened under your leadership. I almost used the word rain. I guess that's not the right word. Um, it's the fiber. I'm one of the houses I'm in the old town and I have it. And it was, I have to first just compliment the crew. It was so easy. They called when they said they'd call. They came and did what they said they would do. You know, everybody has a horror story about the cable company and the waiting all day or whatever. You know, I didn't experience any of that. I haven't had any trouble with it. You know, okay, let's see what happens when the first thing happens because it will, and I'm sure it'll get taken care of well. But I guess, you know, you may have things you want to say about fiber, and I want to give you an opportunity to comment on that. But I have a specific question, which is that, you know, this has been tried in some other cities across the country, and I'm certain you're aware of this already, but um, just to frame the question, and in many of those places, even if it got through the local government, then at the state level, there was lobbying and there were rules passed. Uh, North Carolina is one I know a little bit about. Um, and it was prevented, for instance, there from any other district being able to do it. So I guess what I'm asking is, 
were there choppy waters leading up to wanting to do it? Have there been since? And do you see something on the horizon where that is something we should be aware of, even though it's up and running? Okay. Well, all right. Let me give you just a quick backstory. When um, I did come into office, the one thing that I heard from the voters was, we need a solid internet service to our island. You know, we need that infrastructure. And for in our world, in our today, it's basic infrastructure. It's for quality of life, for economic development. So I thought, okay, right now we have a lot of copper. We have a lot of cable. We had no true fiber, you know, at the speed of light, a glass tube. So we went not ever expecting to be in the business. We went, my public works director and I went down to Kirkland and we had a meeting with the CEO, one of the large incumbents. And within 15 minutes, he asked us to leave his office. He said, we'll never, we, and our, our idea there was, will you partner with the city? We're, we just want it in our community. You're the experts. Will you bring it to Anacortes so we can build this incredible uh, infrastructure to, to, to support businesses here, good jobs here, our maritime you know, um, community, uh, businesses like yours, et cetera. Within 50 so already, not to interrupt you, but just already sort of an acknowledgement that it may not be your most profitable population center, but we're going to, we'll work right. with you. Right. So okay. in 15 minutes, he looked at me and he said, now, you know, you need to leave. We'll never invest in your community. You live on a rock and your population is too small and there's no, um, there's no financial reward for my, for my stockholders. Okay. So we left and a couple of years, a year went by and my public works director came to me and said, well, you know, in Spain, they put water, they put fiber in water lines inside a water line. They put another line, they run the fiber to it. So we could do that and get fiber across the valley to Anacortes because we have, we we're a water utility. And then if once we get it here, then we could build a fiber internet system for our community. And so we got the fire, we did the fiber in the, pipe and we, that got passed by the Department of Health and we work with the state. Um, the cool thing about cities, we're allowed to retail. Uh, if you were a port or a PUD, you can only wholesale to customers. So oh. a city entity, back to your, your thing about the state level, mm -hmm. somehow in one of the rules, they allow cities to be able to retail. So as much as our incumbents would really prefer we not be able to do this, We've been guaranteed that in the laws that we have in the state of Washington. Now, we've, we've got a long ways to go. We, we lent this, this, this business um, some money from our general fund, and we've got the startup going. We've got the infrastructure built to the city. We've got Old Town. Almost, I think we're almost at 35% of Old Town. We've got the CBD. We've got about 20% of the central business district hooked up. It's going to take us three to five years to do the whole city, and we're going to have to borrow and build on it as we go. Um, we have a fiber department now. We have council members that meet weekly with that fiber department and the finance director and myself, and we strategically are planning year by year how much you know we might have to borrow, how much it costs to run it. But the cool thing is we found out we're not totally a rock, number one. We have lots of soil here. So we can trench underground because we're, well, we've got a lot of the aerial done now. So now it's, we get a lot of the trenching. We don't have any stockholders. All we have to do is pay for the service. We don't have to make a profit. 
So if the community can just be patient and we're going to get to you and understand when we, whatever we do, we, it's, it's going to be our fiber utility. It's ours. And we don't, that's amazing. You know, we don't have to make a profit. We just have to pay for the overhead. So um, anyway, see so you're, you know, the proof's in the pudding. You've got oh. it. See how cool it is. And we're hearing that over and over again. Um, so, and it's funny, one of the incumbents right now is in town doing some, you know, saying they're going to compete with us. And we're saying, well, okay, well, I keep reminding the staff, well, they have stockholders and we don't. So yeah. <laughs> our stockholders are our community. Our community gets the benefit. You know, it'll be what it is. It'll be whatever we have to pay for it. There won't be any, there's no gimmicks. It's just pay for it. And it's quality of life. Your kids can be at the dining room table doing their homework. You can telemedicine with your doctor. You know, um, we you can, can do a radio show. Yeah, you can do a radio <laughs> show during COVID pandemic and come home and you can continue your, whatever your business is from your, from anyway. So I'm, I, I'm excited. It's, it's huge, but we're doing it. We're doing it. And, well, I, I I just love it. It's great. I you know big commercial for it. Thank you for spearheading it. I'd also like to just mention uh, Councilman Bruce McDougal, who has a huge amount of knowledge, and I uh, I know that he was a big push to. He was a blessing. He came along on the council just when we needed him because we we're in that. How do we how do we go from here? This was after the incumbent had kicked us out, <laughs> kicked us to the curb. Bruce showed up. Uh, Liz left. Brought, Liz Lovett said, "Bruce, you need to go talk to the mayor." So he got involved before he was even elected a council person, and took this on. I remember seeing him at the shipwreck days, and he was giving out little um, bumper stickers that said "Fiber to the People." He <laughs> So he's been great, and he's our subject matter expert, and he serves on the fiber committee today. That's terrific. Um, um, I have one more subject I want to touch on with you, and then we're going to play another song, and then I'm hoping that uh, Senator Lovelet can hop on, and maybe I have sure. a question for both of you before we sort of let you get to the things that I know you have a commitment coming up. So. Um, so that's what we'll do. Uh, K-Doug, Cassidy, we're going to play that D-plus song, Dandelion Seeds, when we are ready for it, if you want to start getting there. But um, So Mayor Gear, uh, certainly another huge thing going on right now is uh, the protests throughout the country, um, the entire Black Lives Matter situation. We have our longstanding... 12th and commercial, you know, peaceful disagreement, yeah. shall we say, and um, which is terrific and what, what we should be doing in our country, uh, saying what we have to say and, and making our voices heard. So I guess there are two things that I want to ask you about. One is I would like to give you a chance to set sort of a rumor straight. Okay. Um, uh, there was a little bit, so at one of the protests, it may have been the first one, I'm not 100% sure of that, there was a, uh, a, a more physical type of altercation with a vehicle and a 
broken window and such. Mm-hmm. Now, right after that, there was some scuttlebutt, and I don't actually think this is what happened, but I want to give you a chance to answer. So let me just ask um, that maybe because of the charged situation that there was a little bit of a, um, a distancing between your office and the, um, you know, the, the office of the police, the police department. And anyway, it was, you know how these things spread and people talk and they don't know what they're talking about necessarily, but I wanted to give you a chance to answer that. Yeah. Well, I, I heard that also that rumor and, and I, uh, Chief Small and I kind of laughed about it as we were meeting together and we were at the protest together and we couldn't figure out how we were apart since we were together. Um, so I'm not sure where that came from, honestly. Um, I, I, Emotions were running high. Um, I, I, I really, you know, I can't answer to it other than uh, I've never not supported my police department, our police department. They're incredible. They do an incredible work for us. Um, you know, I, was, I wasn't at the first protest. I was at the second one the following week. And the chief and I walked it together and, and, and made sure that we was understanding what people were thinking and feeling and um, and how we as a community could have, you know, better communication. And, um, and since then, we've, the public safety committee and the police chief and the two captains, we reviewed all their policies. Um, we reviewed um, everything that happened at the first protest to make sure that, you know, lessons learned you know, we talked to the people involved, what happened. Um, so we, I think we've all walked away feeling like we really vetted that well, um, talked it through. Um, you know, it's, it's everybody's, I think the combination of COVID and the stay at home and um, fear and then, then, you know, becoming aware of, I think truly an awareness for our whole society of systemic um, racism and, and and starting to have real conversations about that real I mean not not you know coding it over and even in our community when we have it basically we have an incredible community but it doesn't mean that we don't have things to learn it doesn't mean that things haven't happened here but so anyway I certainly Chief, Chief and I are working really hard together and we have been since day one and I don't really know where that rumor really started, but it, I heard it too. Well, I, I certainly thank you for answering that. I have one very concrete question just to follow up on this because you just mentioned, which is just, did that review lead to anything that was like, well, you know, just to take an example, okay, we officially say we can still use chokeholds. We are now not going to do that. I, I'm just curious if that kind of review led to anything super concrete and if not, I'm sure time will. So the review led to us making sure we get everything we do on the website. The review also led us to know that everything that uh, the can't wait for eight lists that's out there, that we have either never done them or we have a policy against them. Um, we have a policy against chokeholds. And to Chief's memory, he said he knows for at least the last 30 years those have that has never been allowed in our community. It's not 
part of the culture here. It's not part of the way we operate. And so within the next week or so, we'll have a whole, everything that all the policies for the police department will be on our city website, really easy for people to see. Oh, that's um, fabulous. Right. And then a lot of, we want to have some community discussions really in depth as, as we move through this COVID, as we get into different phases, because this is not something we want to leave just simmering and not talk about stuff that's important. And I've had incredible people from all over the community step forward and say, I want to be there. I want to help you. Um, many people of color, couples that have lived here for 20 years. It's just, it, it, it's been hard, but it's been good because people are coming forward and we're having really great conversations. Well, that kind of transparency and obviously open discussion, but uh, that kind of transparency is invaluable for uh, the leadership like yourself to help the populace like myself uh, understand where we are and what we're doing. And thank you for both your openness to answering that question and to tackling this so head on. Um, before we go to the song, sort of related, not exactly, is we also have our indigenous people. We have uh, our tribe here. I know on D we have, um, uh, they have a pre presence there, a preschool, yeah. I think it is. Do we as a city directly interact with the reservation? Or I really don't know. And if that's too big no, a question. To no, 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 it's great. We meet. Um, on a regular basis with the Samish Indian Nation. I mean, we have regular quarterly meetings and we meet probably, I talked to Leslie Eastwood probably once a month. Um, and so we've been working with them on all kinds of different programs, affordable housing. Um, they're gonna expand the child um, this, um, preschool program on D Avenue, the longhouse there. Um, so no, in fact, we just got fiber. We just got fiber to the cannery building, which they now own. Um, and they, yeah, so no, we have great, they, we're just lockstep. We're working with them on the trestle and the path. There's a trestle out, you know, our Tommy Thompson trestle. It's got old creosote. And so between the Samish tribe and Department of College in the city, we're working on long-term, how do we clean that up, you know, fix that long-term. So from early childhood to cleaning up the environment to housing, to fiber, we're lockstep with the Samish. The Swinomish, not as much. You know, they're located in La Conner and they've had a, a change in leadership. And I haven't, I haven't met with the new leadership yet. Um, uh, Chief Cladisby and I met probably quarterly before he um, left his office. And so we're not as aligned there. Just I think it's it's more geographical though. It has nothing to sure. do with. You know, we do serve that. We do serve the Swinomish um, tribe with our EMS services, and we've supported them with the Dick Wallach um, um, center out here on the highway. We've, we've, you know, we've. They have to come to us for all the permitting, and that's the most incredible program. I mean, yeah. we're so lucky to have that program in our community. So that's where I probably had more interaction with the Swinomish um, tribe. So that's that. This is great. This has been so incredibly informative. I'm going to ask uh, Doug to play the D plus song. I'm going to ask Senator Lovelet to engage with us. And then when we come back, I have a little thing for both of you and we'll 
pick it up then. So, K-Doug, can you start the song?
Um, all right, that was D plus. That is Brett Lunsford, Phil Elvram, Carl Blau, and I want to apologize. I kept saying that that song was Dandelion Seeds. That's off Dandelion Seeds. It's Dandelion Wine, as you heard uh, eighty-five times in the chorus there. So that was my bad. <laughs> I'd like to welcome on um, Senator Liz Lovelet. Hi, Liz. Hey, Todd. Thank you so much for being with us. Really appreciate it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I know you see Lori there because we're not all in the same place, but we're talking. I have a question for both of you. So what can either one of you can take it or you can kind of ping pong it, but what is the working relationship like with you at the state government and uh, you at the uh, running the city government, you obviously have a good relationship because um, you've already worked together and you were mayor at the end of um, the senator's council time. So that's the question. If you can just kind of talk about that a little bit. You want to, I'll start. It's, it's just cool. It's what it is. Um, it, what is wonderful about it is to know that we have someone in state government that understands what happens at the local level. They understand the challenges of an unfunded mandate. You know, if the state makes a rule that the city's got to abide by, but they don't give you any funding to make it happen, that kind of thing. And Liz, she knows cities. She understands what the impact is. And she's the hardest working woman I've ever met. And she's an incredible communicator. And so I just feel blessed that we have her in Olympia and I get to work with her. So there. And I, I will say that, you know, I've known Lori for a long, long, long time before we both ran for office at the same time. And it has just been such a, a blessing and an opportunity for growth and learning to be able to work by her side and learn from her and the grace and intelligence that she brings to her office. And I will say too that, um, the Anacortes delegation are my favorite visitors in Olympia for lobby days because mm -hmm. when Lori and the crew come down uh, to have those familiar, just loving faces, walk into my office and know that uh, we just get to have some, some kind of more casual time together, knowing that the rest of the time we work so hard on kind of delivering for the people in Anacortes. And so it's just, it's been an honor and a privilege to serve by Lori's side. Well, that is, uh, that's very interesting. Just to dig into it one step further. So there's lobby day. Uh, are there just, if something is just going on, I can't imagine the situation exactly, but would that be a scenario that would happen where the mayor would call the state senator and say, uh-oh, we just had a, I don't know what, a, the oil tanker is leaking and we need you to help marshal these forces or you know you can help me understand that i, I you can tell i don't know what i'm talking about would there be yeah, those kinds of that would be a terrible phone call to receive yeah. um but certainly <laughs> go yeah. ahead Lori. um yeah i could pick up the phone and do that i would probably get jordan her her lead person in the office but i also could do the backdoor cell phone and say you know liz can we talk about whatever whatever the issue is? Like, really, how are we going to fund um, 
affordable housing or what are we going to do about the un uninsured we have we have this because we have this incredible relationship we can have those kind of just one-on-one -on -one conversations and the big issue things we kind of work through the channels because it liz and i together can't just do we have to have there's protocol and ways to do certain things but Certainly. but it, it really is nice we are lucky to have anacortes is very blessed to have a senator that has served at the local level i can't emphasize that enough because a lot of the um folks in olympia have not served as city council people or have not been main street business owners like liz she's you know she's been boots on the ground she she understands what it takes so and i would say too one of the the great things about you know having lori as not only my colleague but my friend is that you know being a woman in elected office is a really bizarre job that very few people really understand in terms of the pressure and stress and the expectations that the community has and how everybody assumes that you're going to be the perfect version according to them of whatever they want to see and so to be able to provide support to each other in that way as well um to to you know just just be able to have that kind of baseline understanding of what it's like to to serve the public that makes a lot of sense you're lucky to have each other we as a community are lucky to have you both and um mayor gear i want to tell you thank you for taking so much time and spending it with us tonight and um we will we will see you around town okay thanks todd it was really wonderful to be here thanks thank for inviting me good night good night well liz um kind of related to that uh I wanted to talk about maybe a situation where it still has to do with relationships, but maybe they're not quite as good, or maybe they are. Um, you know, you're working in an area now, or in a in a situation now with a whole lot of people that you didn't know that come from perhaps districts that think of things much much differently than your district does, and you personally. Um, this is kind of an outlier situation, but I do want to know if, you know, there's this Matt Shea Patriot white supremacist guy who is not running again, which most people don't know, or a lot of people don't know that he was a hamster for a while, graduated from Bellingham High. But, you know, you take a um, someone like that who I would think it's fair to say that his thoughts are, are pretty far from your own. And yet you're in the legislature together and you have to figure out a way to maybe get along or be able to discuss things. And I guess the real question, this is obviously layered and you're going to pick it up wherever you want, is sort of just the process of how you go and you deal with this kind of thing to move your priorities forward. Yeah. So, I mean, specifically to that representative, uh, he is in the other chamber, so I didn't really have much uh, cause to correspond with him at all. I, I've oh, never that's met right. Him. He's a representative. Uh, I apologize. That's right. Right. But I mean, we as a body, there's 28 of us in the Democratic caucus and 21 in the Republican caucus in the Senate. Um, the Democrats recently got control just a couple of years ago. Um, definitely, it was a very 
uh, big shift to come out of the nonpartisan world of city government where party affiliation didn't really make any difference. People probably knew whether or not you were generally maybe a Democrat or a Republican, but the, the issues at the local level are by and large nonpartisan. Once you get to the state level and you have to declare party, then there's a whole sense of how you uh, correlate with your caucus and how to get uh, support through the other uh, the other caucus and the other chamber as well. So uh, most of what happens in Olympia is based on relationships that you build over time. I've made it a point to really work on cultivating the relationships across the aisle with my Senate colleagues uh, to, to great success. Uh, I had three bills uh, that made it out that I primed this year that all made it out of both chambers with unanimous votes. That's pretty rare. Uh, so especially one was an entitlement bill, one was a Department of Ecology request, one was a Department of Natural Resource request. Those are not necessarily um, friendly Republican territory per se. <laughs> Uh, but, but I also came in with a group uh, my first year, and I think it completely changed the way I experienced Olympia because I came in with a first year cohort. Uh, the six of us, we are younger people of color, LGBTQ. So the Senate is traditionally the older chamber um, and, and, you know, a lot of older white guys. And so to all of a sudden have a cohort of people coming in that were younger and more progressive and ready to take on things like systemic inequality and uh, progressive revenue, uh, to finally have a, a team in there that could support some of the other members that I think had really wanted to do some of that work, but didn't necessarily have enough people to stand with them. It's, it's a, I think a different landscape than they've had in other years to really get some of these uh, different kinds of bills through the legislature. Wow. Okay. So, and just to a tiny follow up on that, do you find that the the way it looks on the outside is that you have, you know, let's call it a debate, and then you vote? Do people really listen? You know, is it a debate where people are willing to hear, or is it kind of a little pro forma? Yeah. I mean, Basically, by the time a bill comes to the floor, you kind of know how it's going to go. I mean, you've maybe heard the position in the caucus that is the whip. The whip is the person who goes around and vote counts. If you're the majority party and you're controlling what bills make it to the floor at all, you're not going to put a bill out there that you don't have enough support to pass it out of the, out of the chamber. So a lot of the, the initial, like, working different members or getting stakeholders in there. Um, this is sadly where some of the lobbyists come in. Um, you know, a lot of a lot of the different nuances uh, happen ahead of the floor debate. Now, where this gets really interesting sometimes is when you have amendments. So amendments can come to the bar at any time uh, over the course and usually ranking members, which is the minority caucus, will make an attempt to alert the majority caucus before they, they throw amendments on, but not always. And some bills, you know, something having to do with, say, like we did a criminal justice reform bill that had to do with restoring voter rights to people who had been formerly incarcerated. The nature of the amendments that came out on the bar on that were just, they were horrifying to listen to. And it's it's hard to keep your cool when people are accusing you of uh, being friends with sex offenders and like we we want to give them voting rights back but you know we can't cut grandma's property taxes I mean some of these the floor debates get really just off off the mark and so you learn 
to talk to people ahead of time and work with them ahead of time. And then sometimes you just have to disconnect from what you're hearing on the floor because they are deliberately baiting you. And, you know, the, the expression is that the majority determines the bills that will get passed. The minority determines how long it's going to take. So they're trying to burn up time on the floor because that is a commodity. And if they can manage to drag a bill out for three hours with 85 amendments because they really don't want to see it, you know, either get passed at all or they want to burn up other people's bills, uh, having the opportunity to even get heard. You know, it takes a long time to even go through the process of introducing the bill, having the floor debate, having the vote count. Uh, so it's all they call it burning time on the floor. And uh, they'll come back, you know, your floor leader will come up and say, people's bills are dying. Do you really need to talk about this on the <laughs> floor? Like, uh, you know, you can you can take some time another place. But that is, of course, wow. where the public sees the majority of that, because that's what's actually broadcast on TVW. And it's kind of a, a challenging space because um, our public records laws are are just now coming up to speed at the legislature, which, Lori, you'll appreciate this because, you know, we come from the world and local government of the Public Records Act. And a lot of my colleagues in the legislature just had kind of no idea. They were like, wait a minute, we have to tell you who we've been talking to and we have to keep records and do all these things. And I'm like, yeah, welcome to my world. We've been doing that for years. Uh, so, <laughs> you know, it's, it can be challenging. Wow. Yeah, that sounds like a thing. <laughs> okay. Um, well, let's talk about a few of your priorities, maybe. Um, let me ask about low-income housing. It was one of your priorities when you were here, and I don't exactly know how you have been able to or if you can carry that up, but maybe we'll start there because as I think you heard earlier, of course, uh, with a very informal poll of our music and musician community, that was, uh, I mean, that's an important thing for lots of people, service industry, et cetera, but the music community gets hit very hard. And in fact, in the words of one of our local musicians, he said to me, please ask about this. And we're not talking about I think this was meant very respectfully, but we're not talking about arts fest musicians that already own houses. We're talking about working musicians who want to figure out how to stay here. Yeah. Uh, so what I will say is that this last session I introduced and next session, I will reintroduce a bill that puts a surcharge on Airbnb rentals that can be adopted councilmanically. So uh, if the Anacortes City Council decided that they wanted to add that on to uh, you know, an Airbnb or VRBO rental, then that would be an automatic um, investment into local communities ability to create either their own affordable housing projects or put some skin in the game, however that looks. And additionally, to be able to uh, really support the attendant services that go um, with, with kind of more vulnerable folks in our community. Uh, it's it's often not as challenging as you would think to find the capital to do an initial uh, build because a lot of people would love to have their name on the building. It is uh. a whole lot less sexy to keep the lights on for the next 
20 years. Uh, so making sure that there's access to funds that, that help deal with the services. Um, so part of the, the challenge that I have, I, I mean, in the Senate, we really have the flexibility to run whatever bills we want. However, uh, a lot of it has to do with what your committee assignments are. So the way that I see myself being able to be helpful uh, on the affordable housing conversation is that I'm on the local government committee. So looking at uh, our state land use codes and trying to figure out a way to uh, to strive for the highest level of environmental protection possible with our land use without shooting affordable housing in the foot. Because sadly, the higher level of environmental protection you have, the less likely an affordable housing development is going to pencil. Um, and especially in a place like ours where the raw land cost is so high. So we'll be looking at some different things around that, around our uh, Growth Management Act that hasn't been redressed in some time, you know, ways that we can utilize land in our, our urban growth areas. There's a lot of um, kind of untapped territory. But what I will say back to one of Lori's earlier points about, you know, having some sense of what it's like on the, the local level, we had a bill session before last that had to do with creating um, a 26 unit administrative short plat. So meaning that you could go in anywhere in any city in Washington and put 26 units anywhere you like with an administrative decision from the planning department, which in a place like Anacortes is means chaos because <laughs> not everybody wants 26 units right next to them. And it was really interesting to hear the debate in the caucus room because they were like, but this is for affordable housing. And then we're going to get all this affordable housing. I'm like, yeah, but you're asking all of these local jurisdictions to have their planning departments blow up. Uh, so being a little more thoughtful about uh, what it's like to actually get a land use application, um, what some of the constraints are. And so I'm, I'm working uh, in these coming couple of years to figure out what kinds of barriers we can remove you know, redundancy in paperwork or, or monitoring, for example. Um, and then additionally, the one of the teams that I'm working on right now is Team State Bank. So there's been a group in the, in the Senate in particular for many years led by Senator Hasegawa around uh, having Washington State create a state bank uh, and, and in other places like North Dakota, uh, they have like a co-op style model where it's a lending authority, it lends to itself, et cetera. And where I was trying to kind of help in, in my contribution to the group was to talk about the real dire need we have at the local level for public works and infrastructure spending and housing projects. So we're looking at kind of structuring the bank with those concepts at the core, uh, with all, with you know some other attendant parts with it as well, but really trying to figure out what problem is that we're trying to solve with this this mechanism, uh, and so that we can get more more dollars to the local government, so they can make sure that when you flush the toilet, that it has somewhere to go, and that you have good clean drinking water, and that as we move forward, we'll have more opportunities to build more diverse kinds of housing for people. I wish you could have had a more substantive answer to that question, but. <laughs> <laughs> no, thank you so much. I'm trying to get to the point, Todd. <laughs> no, no, I, that was really a joke. That's the nuance of these things is something that usually we don't get to hear about or even understand at all. It was a great answer. Thank you so much. We're going to take a moment here. We're going to hear a song by Captain Fathom, and uh, we will be back with more Senator Lovelet after that. How could it be that 
That was the song Aura. That was Captain Fathom, another of Senator Lovelet's picks. Again, she picked all the music that you're hearing tonight. Uh, maybe a little less music than we usually play, but we are digging into a lot of great issues, and there's more music to come. So, And can um, I just say that, like, if you – that takes me straight back. Uh, I was joking with Todd when we were getting the music together on this that like I only have that song on a pirated cassette tape from 1995. Uh, so I was like, you're going to have to dig into the stacks to try to find some of this. Uh, but that is uh, like my entire teenage time where we were dancing out at the Rexville Grange and uh, be still my heart when uh, Captain Fathom got back together for one show in what is now the business. Uh, it's just a very, very special, very formational part of my kind of young adult life. And uh, just to follow up on that to say that don't forget as a listener that at any time, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, outside of this two hours that we do the next show, you can go to the anacordismusicproject.org and you can listen to all Anacordis music only, all the time. In fact, I forgot to talk to Mayor Gear about, uh, we had this idea of maybe piping it up through there now that we have fiber through the city hall, but we'll get to that another time. <laughs> um, so, uh, Liz, I want to talk a little bit in a little bit about your story. You just mentioned the business, which of course you owned and ran for a period of time. Um, but before we do that, I want to kind of keep going down this this policy side for a second. I don't know if you would be aware of this, but the government of Australia recently made a commitment to contribute $112 billion to the um, live music and service industry, it, really the music industry, uh, both through concerts, underwriting, show starter loans, uh, sustainability of some of the organizations that support. Um, now, that's a 10-year contribution, but they make the the point that there are over half a million uh, Australians that contribute to that portion of the economy. And so when I think of something like that, it makes me wonder, not that we are going to do exactly what they're doing, et cetera, 
but it just makes me wonder about from a macro level, what our state does currently, you and I had a little conversation touching on this some months ago, but what our state might do currently, what our state maybe could do if we had more resources. And I guess I'm going to, and I'm keep giving you these layered questions so that you can just answer, you know, in a, in a, the fashion that covers what you think is important. But in terms of the revenue that the state's going to have to spend this year, that's going to be less than planned on already. So how that may affect uh, what we're even just trying to do at our base level. So that's a whole lot. If you can pick from that and kind of. Yeah. So just to start, I mean, we are looking at a $9 billion biennial shortfall. Uh, and I'm surprised to hear that Australia is doing billion with a B and not million with an M. So uh, that's a yeah, amazing contribution to their arts and culture. So one of the um, task forces that I'm serving on right now with the governor's office it, in terms of economic recovery is for micro businesses. So people that have 10 employees or less and nonprofits. And one of the things that I try to continually bring up is the creative class, how they are the fabric of our communities, but are a lot harder to support in times of economic duress. So one of the things I've been talking about are venue spaces, you know, maybe some of them have a bar, but maybe some of them don't. Maybe some of those guys offer food, maybe they don't. I mean, how are they going to weather the storm? Some of these are iconic businesses, cornerstones of providing um, spaces for people to experience arts and culture, and they're in very real danger right now. Um, I'm not sure how the state is going to be able to respond, and certainly there's not enough money in the world to save everybody, and that's just kind of the sad reality that we're faced with, but a lot of businesses are getting really creative and evolving their business models in order to respond and to try to be nimble and try to figure out how to make it to the other side. Um, I would say, you know, for those of you who are still trying to get unemployment, keep trying. There's hope. <laughs> You'll get it all in arrears. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's uh, it, it's pretty desperate out there. But when we're looking at such a something that is going to essentially make the last great recession look like a pretty easy endeavor, uh, making the argument to save arts organizations is incredibly challenging, but I think it's something that enough of us are trying to look at to say, hey, we can't just gut arts programs altogether. We need to make sure that there's some kind of backbone to keep them going. Um, but, you know, a lot of musicians, of course, have necessarily had to change with other trends over time. Like I took over the business at a time when CDs were phasing out and Napster was coming on. And you know, when Nick and Evie took over the business for me, they were able to bring so many different kinds of back-end fulfillment and other kinds of um, enterprises to the business to make it more realistic for them to stay open instead of having to rely on a brick and mortar storefront in a market that is just always challenging. So I think there's going to be um, some sad losses in the coming years to just be perfectly blunt. Uh, but I'm hoping that enough people are really going to kind of band together and make sure that we have continued venue and investment uh, for arts and culture and music. I had a really interesting conversation with some of the different cultural museums uh, recently in our nonprofit work group. Uh, one of the ideas that we had was that maybe part of how we can sustain them financially would be to, you know, 
use education dollars to make sure that they can come up with culturally competent curriculum to use in our schools as we move into the next couple of years of online education. So I think there's a lot of innovation and possibility out there. Uh, so, uh, but you know, musicians have always been bootstrappers and they'll figure it out. Well, that is definitely true. There is a, uh, there is a, a culture of making it happen. And it is a little bit unfortunate that, you know, we as a community, and I don't really mean our community specifically, because I think we support a lot also that we could get better. But there are movements to buy local, support your local farmer, etc. And that often, for some reason, that attitude doesn't trickle in the same way to buy the t-shirt of that performer who's doing that thing for free or, you know, people seem to think sometimes that if you have a gig and a bar that you're making money as opposed to maybe getting a burger, um, things of that sort. But, um, yeah, being in a band, I've definitely gotten paid in bar tabs. Uh, (laughs) it's not a glamorous life. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. That's right. You're, uh, are you still, and look, I need to correct myself about one thing. I'm kind of embarrassed about that. But you, when you said that about billion versus million, I went and looked and it was 250 million. The billion was the trickle down effects that those uh, 600,000 uh, members of that community put into the economy in normal situations. So, you know, our research department here is going to hear about this when I get off the when, it, when we get off. <laughs> I was just I was amazed. I was ready to fly to Australia and shake their hands. <laughs> yeah, uh, you brought up the your performing and and let's just touch on that a little bit real quick. So, um, you're a member of the Moss Tones. Well, kinda. (laughs) What is, okay, well, let's touch on that. You have been, and you certainly have performed with them a lot over the last uh, couple of years. What is the current status of the band and of your role in it? Uh, Well, the band has kind of reformed a little bit. Um, Certainly my leaving for Olympia made it really challenging to show up to rehearsals. So, uh, you know, being able to come back and perform just a handful of times uh, afterwards was very bittersweet knowing that I probably wasn't going to be able to commit the time that I would need to, to stay sharp. Uh, what it has turned into is a brilliant Olympia based karaoke career. <laughs> uh, so that's, that's kind of where it stands in my, my performance world, but maybe if I can, you know, figure out how to, how to shoehorn that into everything else that I got going on, I, I sure do miss it. It was, it has been one of the, great loves and experiences of my life that now just picking up the thread of your performing you have had other eras of your life where you've been a performer um would you expand on that a little bit sure i'm the loudest introvert you ever met um i uh (laughs) i got started in theater in high school um and you know, did that throughout and then was in a, uh, performing, uh, a dance group, uh, for a year. And then not long after that ended up, uh, getting the business. And so then it was more, uh, sponsoring musicians for a good period of time. Uh, and then really got to go back and, 
and me and TJ Fantini to do a, a dance competition for Fidalgo Dance Works. And that was a hell of a lot of fun. Oh, uh, and, then, and then, you know, I had always loved to sing like in my car, uh, but never felt confident enough to do it in front of people and then uh todd uh for your very dear wife's 50th birthday we went down and and that was like my second time ever doing karaoke and that's how i ended up in the moss tones uh but now you know give me a mic and i'll sing anytime anywhere <laughs> i will do it uh in olympia there's two different joints that do uh seven day a week karaoke so it's it makes it pretty easy for me to like get that out of my system when i need to Oh, nice. Well, let's go back just for a second, because I have known a bit about your year dancing, but I don't know even, first of all, I don't even know how the transition, or maybe you were a dancer, I guess you were, but I thought of you as in high school, you were on the stage, per, you know, acting, performing, and then all of a sudden you're on a dance troupe and traveling. So can you kind of fill that in a little bit for me? I don't, yeah, I, I mean, I always love to dance. Like that is a huge part of my just heart and personality. Uh, back to Cap Captain Fathom, like dancing my ass off for hours on end. And uh, so after I graduated from high school, uh, I had completed Running Start. And so I was ready to transfer as a junior and really didn't feel like at 18 years old, I knew what the hell I wanted to do with myself. Uh, so I applied and did AmeriCorps for a year. Uh, and then when I came back, I found out about another uh, social justice performance-based organization called Diversity Dance Workshop that was originally created created in the Baha'i community. Uh, but this was a, a multinational, multi-faith um, organization. And we did performances all over the country that had to do with domestic abuse and drug abuse and poverty and racial injustice. And uh, with each performance that we gave, we would go into, if it was a school setting, we'd go into the classrooms. If it was in a community center, we'd kind of do these little breakout groups and we'd facilitate conversations with people about what they had seen. And the group consisted of, um, there's a few of us from the States and then there was a woman from Mexico, a man from uh, Nepal, a man from Togo, West Africa, um, just, just really like broad representation from around the world. And it was just a really incredible and transformative experience and just really enriched my experiences in the arts. I toyed with the idea of, you know, going to school when I got back and, you know, minoring in dance or something. And, and definitely uh, once things get, to kind of a more normal pace in May of 2021, uh, my goal is to at least get back into ballet lessons. Wow. Okay. So it's always interesting to kind of pick up the threads early, but so you were already doing, um, you were already had your fingers in sort of some socially aware situation through, was that something that attracted you to this group in particular, or did that just sort of happen and maybe it, went from there? Well, I mean, I, I think one of the most formative childhood experiences was in fifth grade, hearing uh, one of my classmates call another kid gay and realizing that he meant it as like a really bad thing. Mm -hmm. And it was the first time I felt really compelled to stand up and say, you know, you, that's, that's not a negative thing. Why would you say that? And uh, from there, it just kind of led to more and more activism. And I had already been, um, 
you know, I, I remember as, at like eight years old, I boycotted McDonald's uh, because I just, they used styrofoam and they were contributing to the hole in the ozone layer. So, I mean, I, I, I credit uh, my, my parents and my classmates as, as helping me like become aware of some of the different challenges in the world. But going to AmeriCorps, I was uh, stationed in Washington, DC. Uh, it was also a national group that was kind of based on diversity and, and equity building. And to live in one of the you know, poorest neighborhoods in the country that had a high amount of gang violence. It was my first exposure with racial profiling. Uh, one of my dearest friends in my um, AmeriCorps team, we went into a store and she's black and I'm white and she gets followed everywhere she goes in the store and nobody's paying any attention to me. And it was something that had just never even occurred to me happened to people because I grew up in Anacortes where that was nothing I was ever exposed to. And it was my first real brush with you know, deep systemic racism and being in Washington DC where it was just on such evident display, you know, people who for generations had been impoverished and unable to purchase their own homes. And that's right next to all these shining monuments in DC that were a testament to capitalism and white exceptionalism. And uh, when the opportunity to go into the dance company came up, it, it kind of wedded together two of my passions, which are performing arts and social justice. And it just seemed like a, a natural fit. And um, so just have tried to not slow down since then. Yeah, I think it's fair to say you didn't. I have one follow-up. Let me just tell K-Doug, if you can uh, cue up the next song right after Liz gives this answer. Just... um. Also, you had an injury near the end of your dance time, right? Yeah. And did that? Yeah, um, um, I was injured. Yeah, I was injured by another performer. Um, it was. Uh, it definitely happened on purpose. Uh, maybe not to the extent I think it, it ended up happening, but uh, the positive uh, that came out of that was it um, gave me a relationship with yoga. I had started practicing yoga. I learned from a book that had no pictures in it when I was like 14, 15 years old, just up in my bedroom. And uh, in AmeriCorps, I was able to, we had PT physical training like several days a week. So I got to teach yoga there. And then when I was in the dance company, I had the opportunity to teach it there. Um, and I found it to be so effective for pain management and dealing with kind of the, the really gnarly chronic injury that I had. And so that led me to get my teacher certification and have been sadly unable to teach since I left for Olympia, but um, have taught off and on for almost 20 years. Yeah, I'll speak for some of your students that we're all sad that you're not teaching, but we'd like you up there doing what you're doing. <laughs> so we'll just take you when we can get you. Yeah. <laughs> I keep thinking I might be able to find a way to, to fit that into everything, but I'm not totally, totally convinced. Although now sometimes when I have uh, webinars, I listen in and do my yoga while I'm learning that's a good idea all right we are gonna take a moment um this is a Jean-Viev Castre song uh under her I think I'm saying it right wolf is that how you pronounce it yes and uh so we will be back in just a minute enjoy the song Thank mm -hmm. you. 
And we are back for the last little bit here before we um, have to close up the show. But Senator Lovelett, I do have some couple questions for you. So let's dive right in because we don't have tons of time. Um, let's talk about another thing really important to the um, to the music community. Uh, we touched on it with Mayor Gear earlier, and the city really doesn't have a role to play. So, healthcare. Um, I don't know. I'm concerned that the uh, the nine. What did you say? A nine billion dollar shortfall that that is going to hit the most needy. And so, I don't know. Can you please talk about healthcare for a minute? Because it's an important subject for a lot of our community. Absolutely. Uh, so I'll just start out by saying that I think that healthcare is a fundamental human right and that that's exactly why we have government is to be able to help support people uh, that can't afford uh, other accesses to medical care. Uh, one of the things I was really proud of our caucus standing together on was what we passed in 2019, which is called Cascadia Care. And it's essentially to replace the public option for basic health plan that ended up uh, being gutted during the last recession. And we decided to uh, make sure that that option still started to unroll this year so that people will have access to base basic health care. Um, as one of the kind of handful of people in the legislature that has actually been on Apple Health with my kids uh, that, I, you know, I'm one of those individuals who for on the uh, adult side of coverage, I was always like, 
$1 over the qualifying line and literally had the experience of having my self-employment income change by one single penny. And that being the difference between my kids qualifying for healthcare and not. So one oh of the things gosh. that we've been talking about is how we, how do we make it so it's not a cliff? How do we make it so that there's a ramp that people still have the ability to stay on some amount of coverage with a more limited copay? Uh, I, I think that what we're seeing now, especially in mental and behavioral health, is a testament to the failure of our medical systems. And I think that, you know, most small businesses can't afford to offer those kinds of, you know, that kind of coverage to their employees. So it's really incumbent on us to be working with our healthcare authority, with the incumbent providers, with the insurance industry, to try to figure out what model of care allows everyone to have access to healthcare. Uh, you know, we end up paying for it one way or another, whether we pay for it in, uh, you know, people prevent it. We can either, either pay for it preventatively or we can pay for it uh, retroactively by people showing up to the emergency room in a really dire situation, uh, unable to pay their bills. And so one way or another, as a society, we're going to pay for it. And, you know, I am personally a, a huge proponent of front loading our social services so that we can get uh, not only because it's the right thing to do, but so that we can get cost savings in the long run. Because when people, you know, take a look at that lump that they're feeling, you know, right now, instead of waiting two years from now, you know, it's the difference between you know, for being able to treat something and having full-blown cancer. And that's not an extreme example. That, ha that happens to people in real life all the time. And so I'll continue to push for universal health care coverage uh, as long as I'm in the legislature and beyond. Is there any way to prognosticate about the realistic opportunity to pass something like that? We, quote unquote, are or I shouldn't say it that way. The Democrats are in control, but you're, you can't just do everything you want. So how do you, is this just more research and more talk and debate and figure the answers out to those cliff questions before you can solve it? No, I, I think there's some concrete things. I mean, I'm excited to see what kind of gap we fill with Cascadia Care. Uh, certainly, there's going to have to be some uh, buy-in from the federal government. One of the things that really uh, puts Washington State at a disadvantage is that many, many decades ago, uh, we set Medicaid reimbursement rates, and uh, they've never uh, redressed that. And so because of that, for an ambulance ride in Washington state and an ambulance ride in New York city, it's just a completely different reimbursement that comes from the federal government. Oh, that is one of those things that our congressional delegation has the ability to work on, but it's hard to have um, any traction in uh, the other Washington because of the, the way that the Congress and the federal Senate is set up. Um, yeah, that that's one of okay. those like, fundamental brass tax way we can start working on on things, especially for seniors in our community, people who are in assisted living, uh, people who are already on DSHS. I'd also like to see us start streamlining services. So say you apply for free and reduced lunch at the school. Uh, that application should be able to suffice if you're going to apply for medical coverage. It's having been through that ringer, it is demoralizing. Uh, to have to constantly reestablish how poor you are. And it disincentivizes economic mobility. When you say, okay, well, if you make 13 more cents an hour, now you're going to lose your medical coverage. 
what benefit yeah. is there to take that promotion when you'll ultimately end up in a worse economic place because you took the raise? And we have to make sure that we're not, you know, making it so that people can't get to a place where they can be gainfully employed and have medical coverage at the same time. I just think that those things have to go, ha have to be complementary. And if you can't work even more to the point, you need that medical coverage. And for folks that have disabilities, even more to the point, they're living off of a pittance of social security that is a disservice to anybody. And most people have no idea what a slim margin they live on. Okay, that makes, I mean, that, that sounds like there are some concrete things that can happen. And we're, you know, again, appreciative and, and thankful that you're up there uh, doing what you can do to move that kind of thing forward. Um, in the last couple minutes here, I want to point out that as we get to this last subject, so the Anacortes Music Project, we do quite a few things um, around town. And uh, one of the particular things that you know, is certainly on hold right now with Corona, but was being uh, actively moved forward is engagement and education with people who want to learn music. Certainly a lot of that is the younger generation, but it is certainly also not exclusive. So we were to have a, um, basically a rock camp through Parks and Rec that will happen next year now. Um, we also were in the middle and are continuing the conversations, but of doing some things where if we're raising funds, perhaps the uh, you know choir teacher at the um, school and the band teacher at the school can help us with uh, exactly where those funds should go or kids that those should go to or underwriting uh, certain kinds of instruments, all these kinds of things. So this is bringing me to education. Uh, please set me straight if I'm incorrect. You already saw earlier that the research department got something wrong. But um, <laughs> the, the state sets up the guidelines for uh, the um, districts, and then the districts implement them. Is that implement uh, based upon those bright lines? Is that correct? And if so, or yes if and, not, yes and no. Okay. Yeah, yes and no. So uh, most of the budget, more than half of it at the state, is funding basic education. Additionally, there are local levies and bonds that pay for the buildings and the maintenance and operation. And uh, of course, of late, some of the levies ended up in a very necessary way paying for a lot of the deferred um, compensation raises that I think our, our teachers and our administrators were really due up to get. They were way behind on the national average for salaries. Um, but what that did was it put our all of our districts around the state at a bit of a disadvantage because they had, with, with the McCleary decision, they had gotten to a place where they were funding basic education in a prototypical model. But because of some of those raises and other just expenses, um, it just made it very hard for them to stay uh, financially solvent. In, in our area, we also suffered from a real loss that came from the levy formula that came out of the 2019 session, which brought parity to many, many districts. But for our district, because of our high assessed valuation, uh, actually put us at a million dollar deficit. Uh, the schools out in the San Juans, it was more like $300,000 per district. And these are the kinds of things, those are the kinds of dollars that go into arts education, to after school and extracurricular, to making sure that we have um, a robust school lunch program that actually satisfies nutritional needs. So it, it makes it incredibly challenging 
to try to find the right mix. And then, you know, the state will come back and say, well, now you have to fund a nurse and now you have to fund a counselor and now you have to fund a librarian. And, you know, for each full-time person that we take on in a prototypical model. So say we said, okay, we're going to have a school nurse that the, the state is going to pay for $250 million a year. So now we have to figure out where that revenue is going to come from. So I would say the bottom line for everything, whether we're talking education or healthcare or supporting the arts or anything else, is that we have got to create new revenue opportunities. We have a regressive tax code that penalizes people for being working class. We have some of the wealthiest people on the planet in this state. And it is a disservice to all of the people in our communities when we continue to not tax those people who can absolutely afford it at a rate that will pay for those kinds of basic services. Most everyday people pay about 17% of their income in the form of taxes. Most people at those upper levels pay closer to three. It's unconscionable that we would go into a recession like we're looking at and not work on reforming our tax code. So personally, I've gotten myself involved in every progressive revenue task force there is. So whether it's I have an estate and an inheritance tax bill, we've got um, excess compensation, but more to the point is a work group that we're, I mean, I, I kind of jokingly call it, uh, you know, like the let's burn it to the ground group. But, you know, like we've got to really look at our entire tax code and figure out, is any of this this serving people? Does the B&O tax really serve businesses? Is any of this enough to deal with the revenue shortfalls that that we're looking at? Uh, so I'm I'm looking forward to having those conversations. And one of the big ones that is the the kind of meat and potatoes of my interim work is I'm I'm working to bring a carbon tax to Washington state. So I want a carbon price, I want a low carbon fuel standard, and I want to figure out how that uh, interrelates to our transportation package so that we can make sure that we have access to multimodal, that we're, we're getting better and more robust uh, bus, light rail service, et cetera, um, that we can hybridize our ferry fleet to make sure that we're having lower impact on the Salish Sea uh, and that we have the revenue to pay for that. Well, those are uh, obviously great things um that you're trying to do there and and important things i i i can only imagine sitting in your seat it's a, a tough thing for every person to have their opinion about what you know it from a musician standpoint i'll say it like this there's always the fan that wants to and i've been this fan before that wants to come up and tell you which of their songs you know that they love of yours <laughs> the most and that's mm -hmm. a nice thing to hear but it's also kind of like well okay but kind of in that way certainly our community music community if i can be bold enough to speak for it we find it frustrating that it seems like the first thing that gets cut is the arts and you know when your education system should be there to create a well-rounded citizen and person uh to to take that out of the mix seems like a a crime now yeah, you can ask difficult questions. Does that mean we shouldn't, you know, maybe teach arithmetic or, you know, okay, let's have a longer discussion the next time you come on about that. But, um, well, I think the lesson there is just that it takes all of those moving parts to make a society. And when we start to sweep different accounts because we have needs other places, it's a just it's a disservice. So whether we're talking about money to develop tourism, money to support the arts, uh, money to support cultural programs and, you know, uh, 
racial competency. Like those are all things that a lot of people would say are nice to haves, but I think they're need to haves because that's what creates the fabric of your community. And I'll continue to fight to make sure that those programs stay in place. Okay. Well, you heard it here, folks. Uh, Lori, you are uh, muted, but I saw you tried to say something there. If you want to unmute. And I don't know if you can click that. Anyway, I oh, there you are. I just wanted to cheer Liz on. That was all. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, I would like to tell both of you, um, I, I'd like to tell you both, thank you so much for spending this time with us. You know, um, it's invaluable to our community to get to hear from you. I think you being able to speak to our community is also a thing uh, that might not always happen as much as, uh, you know, we're all busy and we're all hustling and we're doing what we're trying to do. And to have this kind of uninterrupted focused time with both of you has just been uh, a pleasure. So thank you very, very much. Also, it would be ridiculous to end the show without uh, saying thank you to K. Doug Cassidy, the producer extraordinaire, without whom uh, we certainly could never do a show like this, and especially in a corona tech-filled extravaganza. So, Doug, <laughs> thank you so much. He is he is on the video, but his mic is off, so you can't hear from him. But he's a uh, he's the bomb. He's great. Uh, please remember next month, first Thursday of the month. Um, Pearl Tottenham will be my co-host Clyde from your heartbreak slash tires, which is distributed by the business. Uh, Kevin Erickson, I mentioned earlier, we're going to have some younger musical artists. We're going to focus on the LGBT community, how it is to, uh, be a musician and artist trying to come up when you're also dealing with, uh, gender issues and other types of prejudice. So, uh, we will see you next month. This has been the next show. Oh, also, you're going to hear Lake on the way out, the Van Lake counting. <laughs> Thanks, Todd. Thank you, Todd. It was wonderful. Thanks, Doug. Thank you both. Okay. Bye-bye. Yep. See you next month. Yep.
<laughs> Anna Cordes, Washington.